Welcome to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission, where we talk about the biblical text in cultural context. Welcome to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. This is Jackson. Hey, it's Carrie. And we have a special guest for you guys today. I know a lot of you are interested in uh, all things China, and so we have the right person for you. Hannah Nation is with us today. She serves as the Center for uh, Chinese House Church Theology's Managing Director. Did I say that right? I feel like I stumbled over that. She is a graduate of Covenant College and got her master's in church history from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, which is my alma mater. As a student of missions history and world Christianity, uh, she's inspired by this historical moment and just really relishes the privilege of witnessing this whole new chapter of church history unfold. Uh, she's written for the Gospel Coalition, Christianity Today, By Faith Magazine, and Life in the Gospel. She also contributed chapters to several books. And uh, Hannah is currently serving as the content director for China Partnership. Hannah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's fun to be here. Yeah. Uh, and we just, we have so many common friends in, in common, but we actually just yeah. got to meet each other a few months ago at, was it SBL or ETS one of the two? I think it was ETS in okay. uh, Fort Worth. Yeah. 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 No, I know. It was fun to get to meet you finally. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I came away going, she's so cool. You know, because Brandon O'Brien <laughs> is a mutual friend of ours. He came afterwards. And I'm like, she's a really cool girl. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel so. like it's always a funny when you, you know, someone's name, but you've never met them in person. And then all of a sudden you meet them and it's just like, oh, oh, I have to like, I have a face to put with the name now. <laughs> so yeah. right. it was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah, I particularly get that a lot since uh, I have fun not showing my faces on, on yeah. several things. Yeah. So anyways, we are here, guys, to talk about a new book that is, when's actually the release date? The release date is April 27th. April 27th. So a little, a little more than a month out at this point. Okay, well... Just say the title, uh, just introduce the books so that people have an orientation of what we're talking about, and then we'll kind of jump in from there. Sure. Um, so the title of the book is Faith in the Wilderness, Words of Exhortation from the Chinese Church. Um, it's edited by myself, Hannah Nation, and Simon Leo. Um, he he is writing under a pseudonym um, that is not his actual name, but he is a Chinese pastor and really church plant trainer. And I'll take a moment to introduce him as well. He He's not here with us, but he has been prolific in training up Chinese church planters across China. He's had a really significant impact on the country and knows and has served all of the various Chinese authors within the book. So um, the book is a collection of Chinese sermons, sermons preached by Chinese pastors. Um, they were all preached through 2020. Um, they started with the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak and the pandemic. And it's basically a collection of sermons on... <laughs> resilience and faith <laughs> in the midst of suffering. 
Um, and of course, coming from the Chinese house church, what suffering is, is multifaceted. You know, they, it's in the book, they touch on quite a lot of different aspects of suffering and different mm -hmm. ways, especially in 2020, that it was affecting their churches and the globe. So I'll, I'll pause there. <laughs> hey, hey, that, that, hey, that was excellent. I I, I didn't know if you just give the title and be like, okay, that's all. You know, but that was actually <laughs> well. You know what? I I I can get chatty. So if you give me a a green light to talk, I'll just talk. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a podcast interviewer's dream, right there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, until you're like, okay, you're going too long now. Stop. <laughs> yeah, for everyone no, else, you know, we're on video, so we'll just do this, like. Yeah, that's well, I appreciate that introduction, actually, because it leads into my probably just the, the originating question of why should we even be looking at Chinese specifically Chinese sermons? Yeah. What was it about, you know, this idea of reading these words from these pastors in this time? Mm. that felt urgent to you to turn them into a book? Mm. Mm. Yeah. So I think when you ask the question, why read Chinese sermons or, you know, theology um, or spiritual teaching from China, as opposed to other global churches in this particular moment, I think there are two, two things that I, I would kind of maybe flesh that question out in my mind to two. <laughs> Yeah, so here's my yeah. chattiness. I'm now I'm now adding questions. <laughs> so, so okay, you got the green light. Um, so I think there there are two questions. The first question is why China. I think right. the second question is why the house church. Um, mm -hmm. Because all of the sermons within this book come from the Chinese house church, as opposed to, for those who may not know as much about China, um, the essentially a state church, which is called the Three Self-Patriotic Movement, the TSPM. So I think, you know, the first question, why China? Well, on a um, very initial level, you know, if you're talking about a book of pandemic sermons, I think everyone's mind is going to go to China. And, it, you know, if we're, if we're going to take time to kind of sit at the feet of those who put a lot of spiritual thought into the pandemic, mm -hmm you know, those who were there on the front lines of it before it spread globally, it's a very natural place to start. But there's really the bigger question of China's rising role in the world. And I think, you know, for better or for worse, the Christian church and Christian theology has really followed the powers of this world, you know, we, mm. you know, Christian Christianity didn't originate necessarily in the Roman world, but it quickly entered the Roman world and then has essentially <laughs> followed on the coattails of the imperial powers <laughs> throughout the mm -hmm. last 2000 years of history. And it's, you know, you cannot deny that China is not 
is I'm not even sure it's correct to call it a rising power anymore. It is mm. a global power. And as such, I'm convinced that its church will be an influential and important church for the globe. I don't know that we know what that will look like at this point, but China's role not only in Asia, but in the Middle East and in Africa is on the rise. And as such, we will see its people have an impact on these other regions. And so understanding what they believe and how they think about God is important. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So I think the second question that kind of comes from that to my mind is, is why the house church? And I think that kind of follows that if you're talking about a church um, on the geopolitical ascent, um, it's important to understand how that church thinks about its the, the powers that it's a part of. You know, how does the Chinese church think about the you know, not only the communist, the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, but how does it think about the powers of this world generally? You know, how does it think about the church's interaction, not just with the state, but the church's interaction with power? And I think the house church's thoughts in particular are important to listen to because it's larger than the state church, and it's also going to have a different perspective than the state church. I think it's also harder to find those voices than other Christian voices within China. It's harder to access their theology. It's harder to publish their theology. And so I think particular attention has to be given to it so that we ensure its voice is heard, you know. So I think kind of one of the questions that I was mulling over before getting on with you guys is, you know, it's important to think about listening to um, voices on the margins of Christianity. I think that it's an interesting question whether we can really, how much longer we can really call Chinese house church Christianity, the margins of Christianity, right? Right. I think it, it feels that way to us because we've seen ourselves as as the center for so long, but numerically and in terms of global influence, eventually I will, I would say we need to stop thinking about the need to listen to them because they're marginalized to thinking about, we need to think about listening to them because they're now the center. <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. Um, they are our leaders, <laughs> um, whether right. we recognize it or not. So But I think for me, I'm encouraged because, you know, even as they become the the center of Christianity, I think there's a lot that encourages me regarding just their thoughts on power and their thoughts on suffering and the call to the Christian church regarding those things and things that will I'm I'm hoping will help correct some of what needs to be corrected in the legacy of Western Christianity. So yeah, one of the things that, that excited me when I first saw this, and I I'm an endorser of the book uh, for listeners so they know, is that it is from house church pastors because as you know I taught uh, Chinese pastors for a good long while at the seminary level, and getting the theology of the house church was extremely difficult because the 
The only thing you yeah. really see much publications on is like at devotional levels, whatnot. And that was mm-hmm. what motivated a lot of my writing is that, and even uh, the pseudonym was that I wanted to give them a voice and and represent their thoughts as you know because as best as I could. So this is a really unique resource. I'm thinking of the logistics of trying to pull this together, and we're going to get to the themes of the book in a second. But just how did you actually make this happen? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think, you know, I have to give credit where credit is due. It This was a team effort. And really all the work that we do with the Center for House Church Theology is a team effort. Like a larger team than can be put on the names on the book. <laughs> mm, so right. um, it's one of the things that I love about my job is that... Uh, it's really not kind of just like the one author sitting in a room <laughs> coming mm-hmm. up with a manuscript by its uh, by myself. And I think it also really kind of gets it some ways at like the heart of what Chinese theology feels like. I feel like it's it is always more it's more communal and more community focused and so mm-hmm. yeah all of that is to just say it's it's a group project so how we actually how this actually happens <laughs> so we have really basically over the last 10 years I, I think it's taken us about 10 years to put together the channels of communication that are required and also just the trust mm-hmm. so I started working on projects like this with books like this in mind roughly 10 years ago. And it's taking us this long to really kind of cast the vision and build trust. And so what happens is essentially we rely very strongly on Chinese counterparts to tell us content they think is the most important. And so, Mm -hmm. which I think is important because we want to be publishing what's close to their hearts. We don't want to mm-hmm. just be the outside foreigner who comes in and kind of assesses things and says, this has value and this does not have value. Um, yeah. We want to, finding the sweet spot where they are saying, we recognize this as this has had value for us within our Chinese communities. Mm. And then we're able to look at that and say, here's what we think can speak beyond that to the Western context or the global context. So for example, Simon was very important in that role of helping us be able to kind of assess um, what had been the most important within China. Beyond that, then we have a whole team of translators um, and we have a translation manager. Um, his name is Ryan. He is incredibly gifted by the Lord. <laughs> um, I've become very convinced that in this global era, if we really want to see better conversations, better theological conversations between the world's churches, that we have to develop a better theology of translation mm-hmm. and a better appreciation of translation as a, a needed and necessary gift for community 
and conversation. And I think just working with Ryan and his team of translators over the last 10 years has just driven that home that everyone on that team is very gifted, not only linguistically, but culturally. They are more or less all people who either by birth or through decades of living in multiple contexts um, are able to get at the beauty of both languages and really understand and have a heart for effectively and beautifully communicating. So that then goes through the translation team and they work on it. And basically what then eventually lands on my desk is like raw, the raw transcripts, because these were originally preached as sermons. And I can talk more about the backstory of what was happening to produce these sermons in a moment. But I essentially get the, the raw transcripts of these sermons. And it's my job then to, well, two things, to decide what actually goes in the book, because we translated probably almost twice as many sermons as ended up in the book. Mm. And so there was kind of an extended process of thinking through what actually fits coherently together, what kind of theme we could come up with, how to have a flow to the book. So it wasn't just a completely random (laughs) selection. Yeah. Um, But then also just as you can imagine with any, anything where you're taking a, content that's delivered verbally, you know, (laughs) it contains a lot of stylistic language that you, that isn't natural for reading. And so there's just a process of moving redundancies, removing kind of rhetorical, um, like questions or ploys or stuff like that. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's something that I've now worked with this content for, I said, about 10 years. Um, So I've started to gain familiarity with a lot of the speaking patterns and what can be removed without losing the integrity of, of the original sermon. But yeah, it's always an interesting process to go through. So, and then, and then, yeah, so that's, it's a long process. It's, lengthy you know we started working on this well in 2020 and so um you know from start to finish it was over two years of working on it so yeah that's a lot (laughs) yeah (laughs) I I appreciate your words about the gift of translation because I think of so many times in just simple words that I would be using when we were living in China and I would have friends that go yeah that's the right word but it has kind of a little bit of a negative connotation to our ears. So there's a like, yes, that is correct, but. And so Mm -hmm. that it takes just a lot of deciphering, I think, in layers and layers of the translation process. So I hats off to you for work. And you're right, working with a team, right? You know, and, and getting to kind of a final product where everyone agrees, yes, this is what was being communicated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we actually, we've, we have probably a more intense translation process than is common too, because we do two line, two uh, rounds of translation. 
the first we call translation, the second we call editing. And basically for the first line, we rely on native Chinese speakers um, Mm -hmm. because we want the first round of translation to be more heavily leaning towards their like their linguistic perspective. Mm -hmm. And then the second round of translation, which we call editing, those tend to be either like uh, Chinese Americans or Americans who have served in China for very long periods of time, but more basically people whose primary comfort is in the English language. Um, Mm -hmm. And their job is essentially to make it a desirable read right? <laughs> um, right. because yeah. no one will read it if it's like not fun to read. And so right. Right. we have these two rounds essentially to try to bring two different cultural perspectives to yeah. our process of translation. So. That's really good. Well, I want to actually dive into a little bit of the content because I think that they, the us living in the West has, yeah, we have a lot to learn and to look at and to analyze as we think about our Chinese brothers and sisters. And two and a half years ago, I moved, my, our kids moved back here to the States from living in China. And one of the things that they, they're all teenagers and, uh, you know, in their 20s, but one of the things that they kept remarking on is how attentive and engaged Americans are with politics and government. Mm. And coming from China, there's there's a disconnect, right, between the people and the government because they're not mm-hmm. voting, mm-hmm. right? The Chinese mm-hmm. yeah. population yeah. is not voting. So there there can be a real disconnect in how mm-hmm. how engaged they are in politics. So obviously the house church has had to grapple with their relationship with the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so this is a, this is a meta question. <laughs> so can you talk us through, as you have seen, I know some of the sermons also dealt with this, right. It's mm-hmm. how they engage a culture where there is no assumption that China is a Christian nation, right? Mm-hmm. There's really not an assumption there. So when you kind of look at the house house church grappling with those with the government issues and politics, and maybe comparatively the U.S. church, where there's still a large percentage of people who believe this is was a Christian nation, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. maybe comparing the two and how we're looking at the way that those two church church groups are are wrestling with those issues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's such an important question. And it's, <laughs> this is where you could really get me talking forever. <laughs> I have to be like, okay, your time is up. <laughs> yeah, I I actually, I agree with you so much that the difference of like enfranchisement versus disenfranchisement is so big in forming these church cultures. Yeah. And I feel like it's something that, just I've been wrestling through for the last couple of years as I've been working on this book and another book coming out later this year. And um, I think it's probably more important than like I can even wrap my head around. <laughs> mm, um, yeah. Like currently is just this question of like, 
how much does the fact that like I vote impact how Mm -hmm. I think about these questions? Right. So, yeah. So I think that, yeah, I'm trying to think about how to dive into this question. Okay. So I think that there's probably a couple of things. I think that a couple observations that I've made, and maybe I'll kind of feel like maybe to kind of give some like legs to the conversation, I'll, I'll talk specifically a little bit just about like the realities of the pandemic and Mm -hmm. the differences I saw between how a lot of the house churches were responding to their government and Mm -hmm. the regulations put on them, not only because of the pandemic, but also just the, the increased pressures and persecution of the church Mm -hmm. that the pandemic has given the church or the CCP, the ability to do. But I think it's a thing that I always find myself wanting to say to people um, in the West (laughs) when they start talking about the house church is that, you know, I don't know anyone from the house churches who does not desire to be a very good citizen. Mm. They love their country a lot. Um, Chinese really love China (laughs) and that includes the Christians. Um, They have a lot of pride and and by that I don't mean like a nationalistic like you know let's go out and sing all the red songs type of pride but they just they love their people you know they they love their home they love their people they're proud of the thousands years old history that um, China has and they, I think they love the Chinese language. Like they just love China. And I think that it is very easy in the Western mind when we think about like a persecuted church to think like, oh, these people must have so much anger towards Mm. like their government or like so much anger towards their country for persecuting them. And overwhelmingly, that's not what I see. You know, like I do not see anger Mm -hmm. or like righteous judgment (laughs) Mm -hmm. towards their people. If anything, I see like just a real humble, like brokenness for their country, you know? And I think like they desperately want to see the gospel um, flourish in China and they don't want to see the gospel flourish in China because of some like triumphal, like we won China mentality, it really comes from this like place of like, we love our home and we want to bless it. And Mm -hmm. we really see the gospel as the biggest blessing we can give to this place that we love, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think with the pandemic, you know, they have been like exceedingly willing to comply with the whatever regulations have been put on them um, for the sake of of maintaining, you know, the safety of their neighbors. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like there yeah. has not been a sense of like antagonism between Christians and their government through the pandemic. 
there has really been a sense of we want to serve. And when the initial lockdowns were happening, um, there were just huge Christian responses among the house churches to go out and to seek ways to serve their cities in the midst of this pandemic. And it reminded me in a lot of ways as some of the, you know, the old stories of when pandemics hit in ancient Rome and people were saying, we're going to, we're just going to do what we need to do to love people. We're going to comply with regulations, but we're going to love our neighbors at risk to ourselves. you know? Now, I think that probably the only real place where I feel like the house churches take up a posture of resistance it is when it comes to limitations on being able to share the gospel mm. and limitations on being able to meet together as a church or be the church. And I think that is complicated. A lot of the house churches have responded in different ways regarding, you know, meeting online versus meeting in person, all the same things. But the heart attitude has really been, we will accept what the government asks of us unless it infringes on the God's call to the church to preach the gospel, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And, and I think again, that comes from this posture of, the church and the gospel are the best gift we can give to the city and the neighbors around us. So when they resist, it's not out of a feeling of protecting our rights. Um, I don't think yeah. I've really ever heard house church pastors talk about resistance out of this, you know, well, we have this right that we have to protect and mm. we're going to, you know, fight till the end to protect this right. When they resist, it's out of this um, belief that they are resisting because it's their job <laughs> yeah. to, to preach. And if they don't preach, then people can't hear about Jesus. And the problem of persecution is not that it's hurting them. It's not that it's calling them to suffer. The problem of persecution is that it limits others' ability to hear about Jesus mm. and to hear the gospel. Mm. And I think that's such a, that to me is a really important difference yeah. in perspectives on resistance, perspectives on politics, that I think you can filter those two perspectives out in all sorts of different ways. And you can come to all sorts of different conclusions, but the heart matter, like the heart issues matter. And if I think in America, we're, ad we're addicted to our rights, <laughs> you know, we are, we are, we are addicted to protecting what we think yeah. we're owed. I think in religious language, we really sometimes think that if those things are taken away, we will not be able to share the gospel and yeah. that like we have to have certain things in order to share the gospel. And I think that, you know, China also has those concerns, but it's not from a place of protection. It's from a place of obedience. You know, it's from a mm. place of saying, 
we resist not to protect what's ours. We resist because God has given us a calling in this city. And if, and if we are going to do it, it's going to bring us into conflict with those who don't want us to do it. I'll pause there because I don't know. If, yeah. <laughs> no, I've, I've been good. going on and on. So. <laughs> no, I, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, the, are, one of the things. Go ahead, Jackson. Well, you're, we're talking about differences of things, the uh, way they see culture and country and yada yada yada. As you were going through the editing and seeing these sermons, uh, could you maybe elaborate more on what are some of the key differences and emphases and content that you saw in the sermons that emerged? I mean, really organic. They weren't written for a book. You know, so yeah. you're really getting a nice sample of stuff, even things that you didn't get in the book, but you read yeah. so much. What are some of those different emphases and content that you saw here that you probably wouldn't expect to see in a, a, a book of sermons in the States? Yeah. Yeah, there are several things. Well, and maybe I'll real quick tell a little bit more of the story about what led to the the sermons. So not necessarily what I was talking about earlier with how the book came about, but so basically at the beginning of 2020, there was a convention for Asian leaders. Um, it was held in Malaysia and, um, it was not just a convention of house church pastors, but more than half of the attendees were house church pastors. Um, and it was very much owned by them and they were involved in a lot of the leadership and the planning of this convention. So that I, I was there, I was in Malaysia when this happened, I was involved with this whole convention and, um, basically what happened. <laughs> so that was end of January, beginning of February, about a little less than a week before the convention began, the Wuhan lockdown took place. And so we were anticipating about 5,000 Chinese house church pastors and leaders coming from China to Malaysia for this convention. And, you know, of course, this is just now this <laughs> huge question of, A, mm -hmm. what's happening? And B, you know, can anyone come? So... Basically, throughout the, the following days before the convention started, they decided to basically follow the, the Chinese government's decisions. So every city that was locked down, attendees from that city were or essentially said, you know, please don't come to the conference. So it was a pretty incredible thing to watch as cities were locked down and delegations were, were basically grounded and prevented from coming. And um, it's very emotional time for a lot of people, mm. the, especially the Chinese involved. And, you know, no one knew how deadly everything was really going to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that what really stood out to me watching all of these people make these decisions was how much their first impulse was evangelism and their mm. first reaction to everything taking place was 
we have to preach boldly, not we have to protect ourselves, mm-hmm. not, you know, this is a really risky time for the church. We have to protect the church. It was, there are going to be a lot of people dying and we need to preach the gospel as aggressively mm-hmm. and as boldly and openly as we can. And so one of the immediate decisions that they made was to live stream the convention so that everyone who was not going to be able to come and attend could have access to the sessions and the teaching there. And this was, you know, if you know China and you know the censorship and the just everything (laughs) surrounding the Mm -hmm. internet in China, this was a a really risky move for them to Mm -hmm. make. And it was, they had never done anything like that before. It, It was an unprecedented decision. And so it was a huge step of faith for them, but it was, it turned out to be really important. We, it has been very hard for them to figure out numbers, but for the that though for the convention streaming, we're pretty confident that you know the number of people streaming were in the high hundreds of thousands, if not mm. close to wow. a million across the country. After the convention ended, all of the Chinese participants were heading back to China. And at that point, it was not a global event. At that point, it was still just within China. I remember on the plane flying home from that thinking, phew, that's done. Um, yeah. I survived <laughs> and I'm going to go. I survived now. COVID, yeah. yeah. Goodbye, COVID. Little yeah. did I know. But at yeah. the time, all the Chinese knew that they were going back and they knew that they were going back to very strong lockdowns and very little knowledge of what was going on. So they decided that, again, evangelism was the most important thing. And it was really important for them to keep evangelizing. And so they adopted this motto of let the light shine in the darkness. And they basically said, we're going to just have completely open forum streaming online evangelism sessions. And those were our, those are the sermons that have ended up in this book. So these sermons they you know basically they preached to them online anyone could join the calls um they did it with showing their faces um which again if you know chinese security is risky and again they don't know how many people listened but it it was a lot um in the mm. high high tens of thousands and basically So now I am finally (laughs) getting to (laughs) what's distinct in my mind. I I gave all of that background because I think one of the most interesting things is that, you know, Chinese households rarely uh, contain all Christians. You know, Chinese households generally are Mm -hmm. very mixed and especially during the lockdowns, but generally speaking, Chinese families live with each other. So you'll have multiple generations living with each other and often a lot of extended family. 
So one of the things that they did with these sermons is they intentionally preached these sermons both as sermons to encourage discouraged Christians through the pandemic and also as evangelistic sermons. And I think that that Mm. is really different. I can't think of anything. And I feel like in the U.S., we've bifurcated those things very strongly. And we talk about discipleship and we talk about evangelism and we have very, Mm -hmm. we're not good at putting those two things together. But this book comes from the Chinese ability to put those two things together and Mm. um, their Mm -hmm. desire and they recognize that often you have to have those two things together because when you're talking to a household, you're not going to be talking to a household that's, you know, all Christians or all not Christians. It's going to be a mix of people all together. And so I think, yeah. Um, when I think about like the themes of this book, I think that a very common theme is just the search for meaning in, in a broken world mm-hmm. and the desire mm-hmm. to understand what God has to say to us in our suffering. And I think that both of those things are, that's a great, those are great themes to speak on when you're trying to bridge that discipleship and evangelism kind of gap (laughs) that we have in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, Because whether you have accepted Christ or not, we all continue to live in suffering in this world. And we all continue to struggle to know how to live with that and how to make sense of it. And especially, I think, in the Western world, where our discipleship has had very little to do with suffering, we've generally focused mm-hmm. more on issues of purity or issues of theology rather than faithfulness yeah. in the midst of suffering. And so I think that like that's just such a key theme throughout the book. And I've thought even to myself, I, I would like to give this book to some of my friends who who are not believers and just see how it sits with them because mm-hmm. the content was initially preached for people who were on both sides of baptism, you know? Yeah. I think another theme, key theme through the book is just kind of the, the end destiny of man. Um, there's, it's, you know, if you're getting theological, there's a lot of eschatological stuff in it, a lot about where we're going and, you know, what our end goal is. And that's also mm-hmm. a very common topic in a lot of the stuff that I work with from China these days. They're thinking about that question quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Would you say in it- you just said that they're thinking about that question a lot. Would you say that that is a trend among the house churches or just the population at large? Oh, it's for sure a trend among the population at large. You know, <laughs> it's a large population <laughs> and I don't think everyone is like super right, thoughtful right. about it. <laughs> right, but, right. but I think that, that we have more in common with especially urban Chinese I think urban Americans have more Mm -hmm. in common with urban Chinese than they probably realize. They come from a place of disillusionment 
and a place of materialism and just digital consumption. And so I think these kind Mm -hmm. of big questions of, you know, what are we here for and where are we going? Mm. You know, they, even though we come from such different backgrounds in our traditions, we're both in these very secularized, urbanized, digitized worlds. And um, so I think those, those big questions are common among both, both the West and China and, you know, places where, you know, we really can hear what they say and resonate with it. It doesn't feel foreign when you read their reflections on destiny. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. 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 (laughs) I want to share a project with you that demonstrates how the work of mission one makes communities more like the kingdom of God. Mission One walked alongside our partner organization in Nepal to create and implement plans that help the community discover for themselves the transforming power of Jesus. These people went from living in caves with poor sanitary conditions to living in a village in a location with a smaller chance of landslides. Then they created a shared economy centered around goat husbandry. Sanitary conditions have improved and continue to improve. Meanwhile, people have seen the church as a source of blessing. Many began to come to faith, and today, about half of the village are part of the church. This is a glimpse into the vision of Mission One to see every community transform for the glory of God and the honor of all people. To learn more about Mission One projects like this one, visit missionone.org. Yeah, that's good. The as you know, as you were talking about suffering, one of the things I know I saw when we were there is that we, if I didn't very quickly in, in talking about Jesus to someone, if I didn't quickly get to a theology of suffering, mm. it, they were, they were pretty quick to kind of, I mean, they wouldn't necessarily say this because I, Chinese are very polite, especially to a foreigner yeah. who's fumbling through their Chinese, <laughs> but they, there would be a, a, almost like a, I don't know, a, maybe a roadblock or a, a big hesitation. If I did not quickly get to the topic of suffering, yeah. it seemed irrelevant. Big, yeah. Like who cares? So all you're asking me to do is to switch teams and then forsake all the things yeah. that my, my parents and my grandparents and my ancestors have yeah. said to me for thousands of years. So, you know, and so maybe talk to us about that. As you think through the theology of suffering, did you see that come out in the sermons as like, we have got to address this from the get-go? And maybe if so, as you as you saw these pastors talking about this, what are things that we should be thinking about as Western believers in how we talk mm. about suffering? Mm. And even maybe how how quickly, you know, you talked about giving this book to some even non-believing mm. friends. Should we be talking about suffering quicker in our conversations about mm. Jesus with mm. people? Mm. Well, yeah. And I, I, that just kind of put a little tag on that. Try to hold all that question in your mind. But I'll just say this to people from my time in China is that, you know, a lot of people think when you evangelize, don't talk about the suffering part. Like, We'll, we'll right. tell them later after yeah. they after they accept all the good stuff. 
Yeah. You know, and then, <laughs> right. oh, by the way, you're going to suffer. Yeah. And it's like, oh, it's like a bait and switch. Yeah. Whereas, like, I learned pretty quickly, like, I'm going to throw that out in the front because I didn't want to end as easy believing. Yeah. You know, Jesus did that, yeah. you know, very yeah. much so. So, God, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, yeah. Share. I think, I mean, I absolutely think we need a better language of suffering in the Western church for sure. And I also think we need it in our evangelism. And I think it, it is, you know, it comes down to the question, is there anyone in this world who's not suffering? You know, is there anyone in this world who doesn't already intimately understand suffering? I think we can fool ourselves into thinking there are people in the West because we live in the most like wealthy, opulent culture ever. And I mean, maybe not ever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe somewhere in, in time, there was someone more opulent than we are, but it's hard for me to think so. Mm-hmm. And we have, I mean, inside the church and outside of the church, we have just imbibed the idea that these things that we surround ourselves with can do anything to satisfy us or ease that suffering, Mm -hmm. you know? And I, and I think that where the Chinese church gets it right and their evangelism and their discussion of suffering is just basically saying what's like, should be obvious to everyone, which is that you're already suffering, you know, like it's not a matter of like, you're going to suffer. It's a matter of like, you already are suffering. Do you have a way Mm. to like deal with that? Like, do you have something outside of yourself bigger than yourself that can deal with the reality you already live in, you know? And, and I think like, I was just looking through the, the book again before we got on and, um, and I think that 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 really is, I think the question that they're kind of asking over and over again in all of these sermons is, you know, be honest with the reality about the reality that you live in and figure out <laughs> what you need. And again, yeah. that's, I think, a, a message that can be common for both believers and non-believers, you know, but I think that they're, they absolutely deal with suffering throughout it. I don't think that there's anything that I read from the house church pastors that we're connected with that does not touch on the topic of suffering in some way. Mm-hmm. I think that they really, a lot of their understanding of it and their theologizing around it really comes out of their understanding of union with Christ and the fact Mm -hmm. that we are unified, united to a suffering savior. And there's, this is not from the book. This is from a woman. And this was an interview that we did with her separately, but she has this line that I just, it just rattles around my brain all the time, but she just talks about how the servants are not above the master. You know, the disciples are not above the master. Mm. And if you look at our master's life on earth, it was marked by suffering. And we like to talk about union with Christ 
when it comes to all the um, benefits that it gives us. And it gives us those <laughs> benefits for sure. Right. But it also requires of us union with his suffering, you know, and yeah, yeah. That's a hard thing for Westerners to sit with. <laughs> it took me. Yeah, we yeah we want to be on. We want to be on the yeah, A team. We want to be like, hey, <laughs> we want to be yeah. We want to be on Team yeah. Jesus when he's like serving bread yeah. and fish yeah. and doing the turning miracles. over the tables yeah. and being all righteous and right. angry, right. you know. But like, no yeah, one, yeah, yeah. no one's like, yeah, like I'm united with the Savior who like had nowhere to lay his yeah. head. You know, like, right, right. And I think, like, in the last year, as I've been writing and speaking and thinking about all of this a lot more, like, I've just gone back and been reading a lot of Paul's words about how <laughs> the church fills up the afflictions of Christ, you know, and th- that, those are mm. sobering, spooky statements, you know. But I think that, like, yeah the American church needs to become reacquainted with these ideas, you know, that we yeah. do, we are victorious in Christ. Absolutely. We mm-hmm. are also sufferers with Christ and it's part of yeah. our identity. You know, it's not, it's not yeah. something that just happens a little bit when we get cancer and then we move on, you know, the entire Christian yeah. life is one that's marked with suffering and it can look different for different people. You know, it's not always persecution, right? It's not always physical suffering. I think mortifying sin can often look like suffering, you know, living in community can look like suffering. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We all, and maybe that's like what the American church where we can be like, yes, living in community with each other is suffering. (laughs) So, (laughs) but, but yeah, I mean, it pick, pick your, your form of suffering, but yeah, it's, it's the call of the Christian to live it out. So. Yeah. And I I think what you're saying too, is that because we in the West tend to not address it up front, when a more dramatic suffering wave hits us, we kind of get pushed back and bowled over by it because we weren't prepared. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I even think of, and this is maybe a horrible analogy, but here we go. Is it's one of the whole reasons we do marriage counseling is because we say, okay, in marriage, you're probably, you know, finances are going to be a problem. Maybe you have crazy in-laws. We kind of put up these flags along Mm -hmm. the way for people to be aware Mm -hmm. of. Mm -hmm. But then when we look at discipleship, we're like, well, you know, Jesus. And we, you know, we kind of slap them on the behind and send them out to to play the game. And we, (laughs) so there's like, there's, there's not like as much of a, you think about the amount of preparation we do just for marriage. Most people, at least in the church, as we think about like the good, the hard yeah. parts, or maybe the, 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 you know, the parts that will make us struggle, but also the, the good, healthy parts. And for the most part, we equip ourselves for the good and the bad in marriage. Yeah. But I think when we don't equip new believers, especially with, Hey, this is going to be tricky. Yeah. yeah. Their legs get knocked out from under them yeah. really quickly. And I, I think that we see that happening yeah. a lot. Yeah. I think like a, a 
<laughs> like, you know, sometimes I think we've just maybe like lost the power of the, like the idioms that we actually use. So, I mean, like we talk about being crucified with Christ, but like crucifixion hurts. <laughs> like it's right, not right. a like happy clappy thing when we talk about being crucified right. with Christ. Like, <laughs> and that's what I think. Like, yeah. And maybe just sometimes like this is one of the reasons why we need the younger, newer churches. Like we need their voices. Cause like, I think they, they yeah. hear crucified with Christ and they're like, wow, that, that sounds really hard <laughs> you know like like it's like they yeah. hear, they're hearing it and it like for the first time so they get like they hear the words more you know right and like sometimes in the west like yeah. we've had these images for so long yeah that we can trivialize them right you know and and like well western right. culture the church sorry go ahead you know well, in western culture the church and the broader culture have been so enmeshed so married for so long that's like yeah. Well, yeah, you know, it may be that we are crucified with Christ, but if we could be saved, I mean, wouldn't that be better? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's just like, well, that was, that was a previously necessary. Not really applied it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so, okay, maybe one last question. You've been really generous with your time, Hannah. So we'll... Sure. This kind of last part you wrote in, in the book, there was one of the sermons was talking through... Daniel. And in it, this line stuck out to me. I wanted to hear your thoughts. The quote is, the most dangerous times and places are often also the safest. So I think this coattails well well with the discussion we were just having, having maybe, but can you talk us through maybe what, what was going on when this pastor said that and how you've seen maybe this idol of safety comparatively is there an idol safety in china how do we view that in the west yeah so that comes from simon's sermon on daniel and daniel in the lion's den it's one of my favorites <laughs> simon mm -hmm. is he's he's a kindred spirit for me <laughs> he he has <laughs> he has um a healthy pessimism about the world in my opinion they, uh, we have another book that we actually self-published a couple of years ago, and um, he has a sermon in that one in which he he uses the analogy of like people devouring each other and, and like eating each other. <laughs> and I, I'm I'm just like going off on a tangent here. All of our like a, it was very divisive among like our teammates because some of them were like, what is he talking about? This is so dark. <laughs> and I was just like, it's great. <laughs> But yeah, I think in that sermon, um, he is, he's speaking very strongly about exactly what you just said, that we have this idol of safety mm. and we are constantly clinging and, and looking for the things that we think are going to be our safety nets, you know, the things that are, are going to mm you know, get us out of whatever, out of the suffering of this world. Yeah. And right. yeah, I mean, I don't think that that idol is unique to any one culture. You know, I think that all, all humans 
are constantly striving to find the thing that's going to make it all okay, you know, Mm -hmm. and keep them safe. And I think it looks, you know, the things that people cling to, the things that people decide are what it, what is going to keep them safe. Like that varies from culture to culture and how that gets mm-hmm. enmeshed in the culture, but that idol is common yeah. to all of humanity, you know? And so I think that's a great example again of just how we have more in common with Christians on the other side of the world than we realize, you know? And, and probably yeah. I think, you know, the things that an urban college educated Chinese church member and an urban college educated American church member, like the idols that they would cling to are probably very similar, you know, status, (laughs) money, just comforts, you know, all of those things are, are very relatable across these cultures, you Mm -hmm. know? And so I think his words in that chapter are, are really applicable in a lot of different contexts. Yeah. I don't know if that was getting to your whole question. Yeah. No, that's, yeah. yeah, I, I would, I would love for him to be able to like come on and, and unpack that more himself because he always just has really amazing things to say. But yeah, he's a very wise, he's a wise reader of cultures, um, especially the Chinese Mm. culture. And I think he's very good at reading kind of the collective cultural idolatries that are there. Mm. Yeah, that's good. There's a, there's a quote, I don't remember which sermon it was from that really hits on some of these things. Well, it says, If you are always thinking about your own needs, then you are deserting God's way and betraying the gospel given by God. Yeah. Yeah. Like, ooh, that'll preach. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Well, I just want to tantalize possible readers out there to see the meat that's in this book. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, to, to end on like, a hopeful note. I don't think any of this hasn't been hopeful, but we've talked a lot about suffering. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think one of the things that really shapes just the, these sermons is that, and as soon as I say this, you both will be like, oh yes, yes. Cause you've done ministry in China, but (laughs) you know, they really are, they are coming from a culture that really has lost its kind of um like its moral structures i would say you know mm-hmm. the overwhelmingly china is struggling to figure out just you know up from down when it comes to a, a overarching meta narrative when it comes to you know, morality and society and how to function as a society um, and relationships. And, and the result is that the church has grown substantially, you know, and, you know, when a society has the carpet pulled out from underneath it and it can't figure out up from down, 
that's exactly when the church is able to step in and say, look, there's a creator and he loves you and he's given his life for you and you can be his child, you know? And I, and I yeah. think that like right now there's just so much fear in the U.S. regarding, I think, a similar feeling. Like there's a similar feeling. I don't know that the broader culture has recognized it, but there's this similar feeling of like people don't know up from down when it comes to morality or just like how to like we we feel like we've lost a certain structure like a moral structure but mm. like on one hand like sure that is a scary feeling as a society but like that's why how the church responds matters like we can either respond in fear mm-hmm. or we can respond as the chinese church has responded to that same feeling in their culture of saying look like yeah. there's an answer <laughs> like there there mm-hmm. is like an a creator who loves us and like has given us a way to know him you know and and i think that um the fearlessness of the chinese church is what makes it so effective i think that's why the church is growing because yeah. they are not responding to that that kind of social upheaval out of this sense of fearfulness. They're they're yeah. responding out of this yeah. just love for their people and desire to give them a better answer, you know. And I think that yeah. for me, sometimes, you know, I'm I also look at our country and I just think, what is going on? <laughs> you know, like left and right, <laughs> yeah. like what is going on? Yeah. Um, but it can be a hopeful thing if we are compelled by Christ and not by fear, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, that's really lot, good. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of books about the Chinese house church. This is a book from yeah. the Chinese house yeah. church. So just review the details when it's released. That way people can yep. you know, put it in their calendars. They can go pre-order. I assume you can yeah. pre-order. Yep. You can pre-order. Uh, give, people, give people the details again. Okay. So um, the book is called Faith in the Wilderness, Words of Exhortation from the Chinese Church. The editors are Hannah Nation, that's me, and Simon Leo, L-I-U. It's coming out with Kirkdale Press, which um, is part of Lexham Press. So it arrives on April 27th. We mm-hmm. um, are about to get inventory, which we're very excited about, but it will be in people's hands April 27th. Um, you can pre-order pretty much everywhere, wherever you like to buy books, you can find it there. So Faith in the Wilderness, if you just search for that, you'll find it. Rock on. So how can people connect with you, the Center yeah. for House Chinese Houses Theology, uh, support the yeah. effort? Yeah. Yeah. What can people do? Yeah. So if all of this is exciting to you and you're like, give me more, <laughs> um, we have, it's called the Center for House Church Theology. Um, the website is just housechurchtheology.com. We have um, been putting out several kind of individual downloads on the website, which you can access. We also have been starting to do 
study guides for those because mm. we're recognizing that a lot of this material is going to be really well suited for church small groups, kind of missions <clears throat> committees, Sunday school classes. Even we've got several college classes and seminary classes who are starting to use our materials. So hmm. um, it's really, if you're looking for material directly from the Chinese house churches, we've got, we're probably some of the first doing stuff like this. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. the study guides are, are really great. Um, my coworker is the one who put them together. Her name is Clara. She's awesome. And she <laughs> basically um, came up with this idea. They include kind of, just some kind of overviews and then study questions, but then also responses from various kind of thinkers and writers just to help unpack these materials from, yeah, uh, for a Western audience. We probably are also going to be doing a study guide for faith in the wilderness eventually. Um, so you can keep an eye out for that as well. The best thing to do is to get on the center's mailing list, which you can do on the website. You can also follow the center on social media. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Awesome. Well, uh, as far as helping us out, just buy the book. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> and we'll put links to all that in the show In all notes. seriousness, like yep. our desire is really to see this book do well. We think it's really well suited for group studies as well. Uh, it's definitely yeah. a conversation yeah. starter. And so if you are like part of a church or any kind of ministry, and you're really looking for something to help people engage a perspective that's new and different from what you commonly get, but mm -hmm. also still biblically yeah. rooted, you know, I, the way I, I like to say it, it's not a different gospel it's just a different idiom you know and mm, um, yeah. that's, that's, that's a good way of putting and it. it's a that really great conversation starter so yeah well i'm excited thanks yeah, so much hannah all, yeah that will all be in the study notes and uh for you listeners out there um i definitely would recommend it i am an endorser of the book i highly recommend you go out there order it pre-order it um, pass this podcast along. We want people to know about this. Uh, go to our podcast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. You know, forward it to people, subscribe to the podcast, put five stars. That really does help a whole <laughs> lot. Um, thank you, Hannah, for joining us in this conversation. Thank you so much for having uh, yes. me. It's been fun. I'm glad we met. You bet. Last fall. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And so I'll, I'll see you next year at ETS. Yeah, we'll see. All right, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, pass, pass along the word and keep the conversation going. Bye-bye.